Well, good morning. If you're our guest, we welcome you, and uh, we're glad you joined us this morning. There's a lot of moving parts uh, this morning, but they're not without purpose. It's not just busyness. Uh, there's a lot of importance to everything we're doing from a focus on one of the aspects of Christ's first advent, peace, and, as well as what really is going on in the world. And there's some very dark things going on in the world. People who still sit in the shadow of darkness and do not know peace. And so we rejoice in the work that is being done uh, in countries like Guatemala and look forward to seeing how God might have us either individually or corporately enter into some of that work. Um, we're also, as a church family, in a sense, experiencing this past two weeks the bookends of life. And we rejoice with Aaron and Morgan at the birth of their son, Gabriel. And they're with us this morning. Uh, we rejoice with those who rejoice. And we celebrate life. Uh, we also grieve with our brother, Art Unger. Um, this past week, our dear sister, Jane, went to be with the Lord. And we can rejoice in that as well, because to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. And yet we still grieve together with Art and come around our brother and encourage him. And so we need a reminder of this message, certain truth in uncertain times, and that gives both hope and peace. So take your scriptures. Uh, this might be one of the shortest sermons I've preached all year. And I know unbelief is shrouding the room right now. Uh, but Luke chapter 1, open your scriptures to Luke chapter 1. And if you're our guest, we typically dismiss our children for their own lesson, uh, geared towards their own age during this time. But the first Sunday of every month, we invite them to stay with us uh, as we proclaim in, in symbolic form uh, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and our, and our hope that is only in his broken body and his shed blood we believe that is very important for our children if they're not believers to see if they are to join us in that celebration one of the purposes for luke providing look at chapter 1 verse 3 an orderly account probably the most chronological orderly account of all the gospels is that we one chapter 1 verse 4 may have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. Here's how we often handle Luke, because it is so long. Around Christmas time, either Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, we turn to Luke chapter 2. And we read, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. It's very familiar. And we have these sentimental feelings about sitting around with our parents or with our family and reading that account every year, and we bypass chapter 1. And so we're going to one of the most ignored parts of Luke's gospel in the next 12 minutes. Here's the big idea of Luke chapter 1. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. The first section of Luke covers two miraculous births. God hinges the hope of the world on little unborn babies. Luke does not begin his gospel with an adult Jesus or even an infant Jesus. He begins his gospel with the wombs of two women 
And Luke, by design, is, is showing you what this expanding kingdom of God values. And it values those who are marginalized and overlooked and who are considered outcasts. He is, he is really putting forth the dignity and importance of women and pregnancy and children. And in his infinite wisdom, he places the weight of his redemptive plan on an unborn baby. And here's what we're going to see. In verses 5 to 25, God miraculously opens the womb of Elizabeth, a womb that would have been considered dead. That's the miracle. But the focus isn't on Elizabeth. Interestingly, it's on Zechariah's response. And here you have an elderly, wise, righteous, blameless man who responds in unbelief. In verses 26 to 38, God miraculously opens the womb of a virgin girl. Very little experience, no religious title, seemingly insignificant. And Luke focuses on her response, which is one of belief. Both scenes follow the same pattern. And what we'll see is there are two different ways to respond to truth. And that is one of the most important things we can ask about any truth claim or any faith claim in the world, and that is, is it true? And if it is, we respond by placing confidence in it. Chapter 1 contrasts the attitudes of Zechariah, who tells us this, we may disbelieve God's plan because we don't understand it. Or Mary, we may believe God's plan because we trust God's character. One hinges on your wisdom and insight. The other one hinges on the character of God as he has revealed himself throughout redemptive history. Here's the first one. Look at verse 5. Zechariah. Here's the historical context. They lived, Zechariah and Elizabeth, during the days of King Herod of Judea. He is nearing the end of his reign. By the way, rulers come and go. Here is the historical or political context. We make so much about our rulers and about politics as though they are a Messiah in and of themselves, and yet it just receives a simple glance or a nod in this account. And it moves past these mighty rulers, whether they're puppet kings or whether they're true emperors, and it sort of just kind of bypasses them and starts to focus on women and babies. Zechariah and Elizabeth have reputable backgrounds. Look at verse 6. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They weren't sinless, but they were faithful. And it probably made their childless state even more difficult for them to understand because there is a common belief that if we are righteous and blameless, God will bless us. And we believe the same thing, don't we? And sometimes we are righteous and blameless and our life seems to be without blessing. And God is blessing those who aren't righteous and blameless. And almost their entire life, Elizabeth has to endure the ridicule and the shame and the stigma of being barren. 
Yet here they are, still serving faithfully in their old age. Look at verse 7. Both were advanced in years. I would imagine that at this point they didn't expect their situation to change. They just accepted it. They probably wondered why they were childless. The universal human tendency of wondering why everyone else was being blessed. And why isn't God blessing them? It really was a social shame in those days. Look at how she described her pain in verse 25. My reproach among women. My disgrace among other women in my town. A reason for them to taunt me is the word. That's what reproach means. The the truth of probably could not have children turned into the reality of would not have children. And their example provokes us to ask this question. Will we serve God faithfully through our disappointments? No child, no husband, no girlfriend, no dream job. Poor health. Will God mean more to us than all those things? Will God still be the treasure of my heart when I don't get what I want? That's how Luke's Gospel begins. By putting forward their need in a real human life drama. The angel says seven things to Zechariah. I'm not going to develop them this morning. He says, and he calls him by name, Zechariah, don't be afraid. He's in there doing a once-in-a-lifetime job. If you're a priest, you only get to do, you only get to offer incense one time, and there were about 85,000 priests, and not everybody got selected to do this. He's in a, he's in a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and the angel Gabriel appears next to him, and of course he's startled. Don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Well, what prayer? We assume a prayer for a child, And maybe that's true, doesn't say. He is probably in there offering incense and praying for the redemption of Israel. And that prayer is about to be answered along with a prayer he might have prayed 40 years ago, the prayer for a child. And then he says, your wife will bear you a son. By the way, his name is going to be John, which means God is gracious You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. And the wording calls calls back to memory, Elijah, he will not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And really, you you have these sort of land bridges in the Bible. You have Malachi chapter 4, and then there is what, what are often called the silent years, They're the intertestamental years of over 400 years. And Malachi 4 then stretches out and touches Luke chapter 1. And the wording that God uses in Luke 1 is the same wording he ended Malachi with in chapter 4. He says this, actually in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger. He says that in Luke chapter 1 about John. And he will prepare the way before me. Before Yahweh? Yes, but now he's going to be a son. He's going to be human. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, 
says the Lord of hosts, more than 400 years later, that must have seemed like a long time for God not to speak any new scripture. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And then look at verse 17. He will go in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he quotes Malachi 4, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 to 6. God keeps his promises. Turn hearts is the idea of repentance. And God picks up right where he left off. And I want you to see Zechariah's response because this is what's really supposed to be highlighted. Look at verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Well, Gabriel rebukes him in verses 19 to 23. Reminds him who he is. He says, I've come to bring the good news, verse 19. And you want a sign? An angel in the temple is not enough of a sign. Do you want a sign? Here's the sign. You won't be able to speak until the miracle comes to pass. It's really kind of clever because God, in essence, is saying, because you doubted me, I need you to just be quiet for a while and watch my promises unfold, whether you believe them or not. Whereas Zechariah should have praised and come out to the other priests and rejoiced, now he can't. The people were waiting for Zechariah. He came out. He was unable to speak. And the question is, look at verse 20. The question is, what are we believing? Because Gabriel says, because you did not believe my words. Is there any other narrative in the Old Testament that Zechariah would have been familiar with that he could have looked back on and said, yes, God keeps his promises? Any other elderly couple whose womb was dead, she was beyond the ability to give birth, and God says even in that, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything impossible Genesis 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. By the way, Abraham laughed too. It's not just Sarah. We often blame Sarah for laughing inside the tent. Abraham laughed too. And he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And by the way, what happened? And yet Zechariah chose to not believe in the promises that God fulfilled and the promises that God kept. He chose not to believe in an angel standing next to him in a word from the Lord, and he doubted. And as a result, he loses his voice. And by the way, Elizabeth gave birth to a son. In contrast, I want you to see Mary. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month... This is six months after Elizabeth has conceived. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee. We moved from Jerusalem to a small rural place up north named Nazareth. Remember that? Can any good thing, right? This little place had a reputation. And the angel of Gabriel is not restricted to a temple in kingly Jerusalem. 
He goes to this rural town with a bad reputation to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. A young woman is engaged. Zechariah and Elizabeth are nearing the end of their lives. Mary and Joseph are basically just beginning theirs. And the point is, what God does has very little to do with your age or your experience or your birthplace or your race. God uses whomever he chooses. And, and, and the angel reminds Mary of this. Look at verse 28. Greeting, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. His gracious choice of Mary. See, we might be tempted to think Zechariah had been chosen because he was righteous and blameless and a priest, and he was chosen to enter a religious place and do a religious activity. And Mary reminds us that that's not the case. God chooses to have favor upon whom he chooses to have favor. Look at verse 29. Mary, like Zechariah, was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And as with Zechariah, Gabriel explains his message. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus Joshua, Jehovah, Yahweh is salvation. He will be called great, the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign, and his kingdom will be forever, verses 32 to 33. By the way, that was a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and again God keeps his promises. Mary's response in contrast to Zechariah's response. Because on the surface, they seem similar, but she's not asking, can you do it? Or how will I know? What she is asking is, how will you do it? And her question builds on belief, not unbelief. Gabriel explains in verse 35, and by the way, he explains two mysteries, the incarnation and the triunity of God. Look at verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Verse 37, because as we grasp to understand the deity and humanity of Christ, for nothing will be impossible with God. In closing, look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord let it be to me, what does she say right there? According to your word. Gabriel had to tell Zechariah, because you did not believe my words. Mary says, let it be to me according to your word, and the angel left. And when Mary responds in faith, I don't want, you to, I don't want this to be lost on us, she faces potential public shame. The prospect of divorce, or at least a broken betrothal, and never marrying again. Probably forced from her home and family, she would be destitute, and she would face the same prospect that women face today when men abandon them throughout the world. Statistically, a woman ends up in shame and poverty. And we were reminded of that this morning. 
And Mary said, in light of all of that, Zechariah had nothing to lose. And he says, "Mm." Mary has everything to lose. And she says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the question is, how are we responding to God's word this morning? God keeps his promises. Darrell Bach, let me just read this in conclusion. In his commentary on Luke, he says this, God is gracious in seemingly mysterious ways. Sometimes we are deprived of something because God has better things awaiting us down the road. When we patiently wait on the Lord, he often gives us more than we imagined possible. Zechariah and Elizabeth wanted a child. What they got was a prophet. God's ways are set to his clock, and they are often filled with things that cause us to wonder as we rejoice at his surprises. And Mary says, I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. And she does give birth to a son. She gives birth to the Son of God who came to save his people from their sins. God keeps his promises, and he came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray.